You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. If the story is to be believed, in June of 1899, Frank C. Lewis was hired to represent a consortium of Chicago investors engaged in a top-secret deal. The Chicago syndicate saw a big opportunity in China, which they hoped to capitalize on, to buy up a portion of the Great Wall, demolish it, and use the rubble to build a 700-mile-long road from Beijing in the north all the way to Shanghai at the Yangtze River Delta. You're right, it does sound like a bad idea. But more particularly, it sounds like a dangerous idea. If word got out of secret negotiations to let America destroy China's greatest cultural totem, the Chinese people wouldn't be happy. And so Frank C. Lewis was hired to surreptitiously go to China and seal the deal quietly and oversee the project to its completion. He left his home in Evanston, Illinois, telling his family and colleagues that he was headed for Pittsburgh. But in truth, he was going west, towards San Francisco, to a steamship. Frank C. Lewis had two qualifications that made him the right man for the job. One, he was a trained, licensed, and bonded civil engineer. And two, he had lived in China for four years. However, there was one honking reason why you wouldn't want to hire Frank C. Lewis to head up your secret scheme. If the story is to be believed, Frank C. Lewis couldn't keep a secret. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, the rest of the story. On June 24th, just a day after leaving Chicago's Union Station, Frank C. Lewis alighted a train in downtown Denver, Colorado, and got a room for the night at the Oxford Hotel. Then, he headed down to the bar, where it would seem he got a little too loose. If the story is to be believed, Lewis got into a drunken conversation with a party of four who were sitting at a booth in the bar. They asked him where he was from and what he was doing, and as easy as that, Frank C. Lewis sang like a canary. According to Lewis, the Chinese government was entertaining a number of bids, two groups from England, one each from France, Germany, and Russia. He told the men that he suspected there was another secret American syndicate out of New York. He even told them the names of some of the Chicagoans he represented. Marshall Field, Philip Armour, the Sausage King of Chicago, as in what kind of kid eats Armour hot dogs, and Carter Harrison Jr., owner of the Chicago Times and the then mayor of the city. It is astonishing that old and decrepit China should have the exertion to think of disposing of the old landmark, he mused. Nevertheless, it is so, and I am on my way to investigate and report. And so, 
After a couple more drinks drunk and secrets spilled, Frank C. Lewis bid his new friends adieu and headed up to his room. At 4 a.m., he boarded his next train, from Denver to San Francisco, never knowing the identities of the four men to whom he'd blabbed. Their names were Al Stevens, Jack Turney, John Lewis, and Hal Wilshire. Al Stevens was a reporter for the Denver Republican. Jack Turney was also a reporter for the Denver Times. John Lewis was also a reporter for the Denver Evening Post. And Hal Wilshire was, you guessed it, a reporter for the Rocky Mountain News. Each of them had been sent to Denver's Union Station to chase a story that failed to materialize, and so they decided to walk over together to the Oxford's bar to commiserate over their shared lack of anything to write about. Lucky for them, along came Frank C. Lewis to change their fortunes. The next morning, Stevens filed a story for the Republican with the headline, Builds Highway of Chinese Wall, American Capital to Construct a Road of Stones from the Wonder. Mayor of Chicago is one of the men interested in the project. The Denver Times headline read, Chicago to Demolish the Old Chinese Wall. The Denver Evening Post's was the most succinct, Old Wall Must Go. As for Hal Wilshire and the Rocky Mountain News, well, they ran the story on the front page with a headline in screaming capital letters, Great Chinese Wall is Doomed, Peking to Seek World's Trade. The secret, to put it mildly, was out. The next day, the Chicago Daily Tribune republished the entire text from the Times under the headline, Plan to Raise Chinese Wall. The day after that, the Washington Post wrote about the plan. Finally, the New York Times got to the story on June 28th. From there, the news spread to every corner of the country and around the world. Finally, the story reached China. On November 2nd, 1899, where the incensed Chinese people took up arms against Western missionaries, Chinese Christians, and complicit government officials. Over the next two years, the so-called Boxer Rebellion spread and burned throughout China, drawing nine nations into war and eventually killing an estimated 100,000 people. All because Frank C. Lewis couldn't keep his big mouth shut. If the story is to be believed, that is. Which it is not. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go back to the top. It's June 24th, 1899, and four newspaper reporters are hanging out at the Oxford Hotel Bar in downtown Denver, Colorado. But on June 24th, 1899, neither newspapers nor their reporters are quite what we think of today, unless what you think of today is nakedly partisan, sensational, agenda-driven liars, in which case, calm down, dude, but also, yeah, kinda. Periodicals of the 19th and early 20th centuries were, to put it gently, not totally trustworthy. Even back in the 18th century, when papers were relatively niche in both their printers and their audience, publishers were already pulling pranks, hoaxes, and propaganda on the regular. Take our buddy Benjamin Franklin, who famously published both the Poor Richard's Almanac and the Pennsylvania Gazette, each of which he choked with phony stories written under pseudonyms like Silence Do Good, Ephraim Censorious, and Anthony Afterwit. Some of these stories were funny, like Poor Richard, who predicted the death of his publishing rival Titan Leeds down to the minute. When Titan Leeds failed to die at the appointed hour, Franklin ran his obit anyway. He kept up the ruse for years, saying that Leeds had died and someone was using his name to publish inferior products. When Titan did finally die in 1738, Franklin commended the phony for finally dropping the act. Which is very funny, actually. Very, very funny. But Franklin also spread rumors and propaganda about Native Americans scalping colonial women and children. His intent was to tar the British. The effect has been hundreds of years of demonization. Most papers of Franklin's day were in the business of explicitly pushing a political agenda. Readership wasn't of a size that you could make an industry out of ads or subscribers. The only reason to publish was as a party organ looking to get support. In the 1830s, that changed with the invention of steam-cranked printers, which began putting out penny papers, making the news available for the first time to people outside the literati. But journalism didn't really exist, and most of the penny papers competed for audience with sheer sensationalism. The great American newspapermen of the 19th century, like Edgar Allan Poe and Mark Twain, frequently trafficked in pure, grinning shenanigans. We've talked about one of Poe's newspaper hoaxes before, the facts in the case of M. Valdemar, wherein Poe wrote about a dying man who was put into hypnosis just before his final breath and held there in a state of undeath for seven months. But his most infamous japes were a pair of stories about hot air balloonists. In one, a European named Monk Mason was supposed to have crossed the Atlantic in just three days. In the other, a mysterious man calling himself Hans Fall dropped a letter out of his balloon detailing a trip to the moon and beyond via hot air balloon. Poe claimed to have found the letter and had it printed in the New York Sun. Twain wrote up a bevy of journalistic frauds over the course of his career, especially during the 1860s when he worked for the Territorial Enterprise out of Virginia City, Nevada. The most fascinating example is his Empire City Massacre, in which he detailed the gruesome story of a man losing his fortune in a bad San Francisco utilities investment scheme, murdering his family, and riding through the streets of Carson City, waving the bloody scalp of his wife around. At the time, West Coast papers had been promoting just the sort of scheme that Twain blamed for the massacre. 
and he concocted the story in a successful attempt to create one so scandalous that the papers would run it without realizing it was going against their own plan. There are so many great 19th century newspaper hoaxes to talk about that I have to draw a line for myself here, in part because I want to keep some in reserve. Just one more, though, from my hometown. On February 13, 1875, the Chicago Times ran a tragic and horrifying story about a Chicago theater burning to the ground with 157 people still inside. The Times defended itself against a public outrage that its fake news engendered by saying the story was meant to be a warning of what could happen without better fire safety standards in the city's theaters. A very necessary warning, it would turn out, as 28 years later, the Iroquois Theater would burn almost exactly as the article described, killing more than 600. But what makes the Chicago Times hoax so interesting to me is that it drove one woman insane. According to the Chicago Tribune, she read the report in the Times, saw her husband's name listed among the dead, and immediately collapsed into a catatonic stupor. Of course, this story was also a hoax, played by the Trib to denigrate its competition. Which brings us to the other thing about newspapers of the late 19th century. They were going to absurd lengths to outdo, outcompete, and undercut one another. Most infamously, the competition between Joseph Pulitzer's New York World and William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal drove both papers to such extremely bad reporting that Hearst ended up helping push the United States into the Spanish-American War. But that is a much longer story. Yellow journalism dominated American newspapers in the late 19th century. The New York World versus the Journal, the Chicago Times versus the Tribune. Yet, arguably, the most extreme example of this phenomenon was in Denver, Colorado. Harry Hay Tammen was born in 1856 Baltimore, but spoke only German, the language of his mother. His father died when he was young, and his mom, unable to take care of him, gave him over to an orphan's home. He refused to go, and struck off on his own at just seven years old. From then on, he worked as a porter, at a succession of beer gardens, from Baltimore to Chicago, and then on to Denver. There, he discovered Jefferson Randolph Smith II, better known as Soapy. Soapy was so called because of a scam he ran selling bars of soap. He'd set up his cart on a street corner with a big display of paper-wrapped bars of soap. In some of these, he'd wrap cash money hidden beneath the paper and mixed in with the rest of the supply. People lined up for a chance at purchasing a prize soap, lined with up to $100. Unfortunately for those saps, Soapy Palman placed the money bars, only selling them to stooges he planted in the crowd. From this, a budding criminal enterprise was born, and by 1887, Soapy reportedly had his hands in every underworld cookie jar in the city. Later, Soapy would die in an Alaska gunfight over a three-card Monty game, but before that, he claimed to have purchased the body of a prehistoric man who supposedly weighed 772 pounds and was made of stone, which he charged a quarter to see. Harry Tammen learned that this body was actually sculpted concrete, and he was so amused by the bamboozle that he decided to get into the swindle business himself. He started the Tammen Curio Company, 
selling fake tourist trinkets he marketed as real Western souvenirs and authentic Indian goods, moccasins, blankets, papooses, and arrowheads that were all crafted by boys and old women in Denver. He sold what he called authenticated scalps from the fallen enemies of Geronimo. Hell, he even claimed to sell Geronimo's scalp several times over. And then he bought a newspaper. The Evening Post was founded in 1892 expressly to improve President Grover Cleveland's standing in Colorado. It didn't work, and a year later the paper folded. In 1894, a group of Democrats spent a hundred grand trying to revitalize it, but that also failed. So Harry Tammen and his business partner, Frederick Gilmer Bonfies, bought it for the low, low cost of $12,500. Bonfies was a con artist in his own right. He spent the 1880s running fraudulent lotteries throughout Kansas, Missouri, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and finally Chicago, where he was arrested in 1892 with 30,000 fake tickets. But three years later, he was in Denver, having fled Guthrie, Oklahoma, after a real estate scam he was running went south. He put together the money with Tammon, and together they suddenly had on their hands a new kind of scam. The third most read newspaper in Denver. When they closed the deal, the Evening Post had a circulation of 4,000. After three years under their, ahem, guidance, it was read by 27,000 almost half the city's population. The secret to the newly renamed Denver Evening Post wasn't very secret. Tammen and Bonfies pushed their reporters to publish white-hot garbage with big, bold headlines printed in bright red ink. Shortly after the change in management, Tammen described to the city editor what he saw as the paper's new style. You've seen a vaudeville show, haven't you? It's got every kind of act. Laughs, tears, wonder, thrills, melodrama, tragedy, comedy, love, and hate. That's what I want you to give our readers. In practice, this looked like splashy front pages wreathed with headlines like Jealous Gun Gal Plugs Her Lover Low, a head Tammon came up with himself. The copy editor suggested it was grammatically incorrect, to which Tammon said, That's the trouble with this paper. Too goddamn much grammar. When the Great Wall story was published, the talk of the town was Alfred Packer, the so-called Colorado cannibal, who disappeared with five people into the San Juan Mountains in 1874 and came back alone. He told the authorities the party had been trapped in the harsh winter and confessed that the survivors had taken to eating the dead to sustain themselves. When that story fell apart, he came out with a new one, that one of his companions, Shannon Bell, had killed the others before Packer managed to shoot him in self-defense. Then, Packer had eaten everybody. Again, in order to survive. When that story, too, began to disintegrate, Packer went on the run, only to be captured nine years later, convicted of murder, and sentenced to death. He got a retrial, and eventually a sentence of 40 years for five counts of voluntary manslaughter. In 1899, his story came to the attention of Lionel Campbell Ross O'Brien, a reporter for, where else, the Denver Evening Post, who wrote under the pseudonym Polly Pry. Lionel, or Polly, or, well, she went by Nell, so Nell met Fred Bonfies on a train trip from New York to Denver and managed to talk her way into a job by the end of the ride. She wrote for the Gossip Column and the Society page, but also did her share of muckraking, including an expose on the Colorado mental health system titled 
our insane treatment of the insane. She stumbled across Packer when working on a similar long-form piece about the prison system. Packer told Nell, or no, crap, can we go back to calling her Polly because the alliteration will be better. Packer told Polly that he had eaten the five men, but that he hadn't killed them. Polly believed him and went about turning that belief into a cause celeb. She wrote stories pleading for his release and even convinced Tamman and Bonfies to hire an attorney to represent him. After securing his parole, Tamman and Bonfies learned that the attorney, William Plughat Anderson, had secretly double-charged them, taking his fees both from the paper and from Packer. When they confronted him about this, in December of 1899, six months after the Great Wall story, Plughat pulled a gun and shot them both. Which goes to show why you should avoid lawyers called Plughat. Polly Pry managed to save her bosses' lives by dressing their wounds with her skirts. Plughat was tried for attempted murder three times, but never convicted. On the other hand, Tamman and Bonfies were convicted during the third trial. They were sentenced to a day in jail each and a large fine for jury tampering. And then they bought a circus. More after this. The Constant is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Too often, when I'm looking for research, the information is unreliable. And when it's not unreliable, it's not in-depth. And when it's in-depth, it's not accessible. The great thing about The Great Courses Plus is that it's all that and more. You can get shoulders deep in virtually any subject you want and do it at the hands of engaging professors and experts who make the content interesting, comprehensible, and fun. Start your free trial to see for yourself. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash theconstant. There's an ocean of content to discover on The Great Courses Plus, from classics like history, literature, and science, to hobbies and leisure activities like chess, playing guitar, or mechanics. This week, I'm recommending Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking skills. This series looks at the science of cognitive biases and critical thinking to make you a savvier, sharper critical thinker. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch anywhere from any device. Stream to your internet-connected TV in the living room, and then toggle over to your phone while cooking dinner. Now is the perfect time to sign up for The Great Courses Plus, and my listeners can check out any course or lecture for free today. That's free access to their entire library. Don't wait any longer. Sign up today using my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash theconstant. One more time. That's the Great Courses Plus, P-L-U-S dot com slash the constant. And by BetterHelp. If something is preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. They will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment in under 24 hours from signing up. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling provided at your own pace. Send messages to your counselor anytime and get timely, thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to leave your house. BetterHelp is committed to offering great therapeutic care at an affordable price. It's cheaper than traditional counseling, with financial aid available, and you can change counselors anytime you need. What's more, it's available worldwide, with counselors specializing in areas that might not be available to you locally, like LGBT matters, self-esteem, stress, trauma, anxiety, or depression. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states, and there's a reason why. Their service is convenient, professional, and affordable. 
I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Tamon and Bonfies were exceptional but they were hardly exceptions. For instance, the managing editor of the Rocky Mountain News, John Arkins, published disparaging comments about Mary Eva Noonan, the wife of Soapy Smith, who responded by politely beating Arkins with a cane in the street. So, those are the sorts of people our four drunken reporters worked for. If you believe the story, Al Stevens, Jack Turnay, John Lewis and Hal Wilshire had all been assigned to beat the bushes around Union Station and the hotels downtown for juicy news stories on June 24th, 1899, and each of them had come up empty-handed. So they went to the bar at the Oxford Hotel, where they did not meet Frank C. Lewis, the civil engineer in charge of brokering a deal for a secret consortium of Chicago fat cats, including Montgomery Ward, looking to tear down the Great Wall of China because no such man as Frank C. Lewis existed, nor did the secret consortium or the plan to turn the Great Wall into a highway. Instead, beers in hand, the four men commiserated about not having anything to show their bosses. What were they going to do about it? Al Stevens gave the obvious answer. You guys can do what you want, but I'm going to fake. I won't go back to the city desk on a pinch-hitting night like this without a line. It won't hurt anybody, so don't get sore. The other three looked around and decided they'd make up stories too. This wasn't an extraordinary decision, as I hope I've made clear by now. Making up stories was just something you did sometimes if you were working for a 19th century American newspaper, especially if that 19th century American newspaper was located in Denver, Colorado, home to Tamman and Bonfield's Denver Evening Post, which was better known as the Bucket of Blood. What made that night unique is that, for possibly the first and only time ever, four newspapers decided to write the same fake story. John Lewis is credited with the idea. If you believe the story, he asked, why four weak fakes? If we're going to slip one over, why not make it a good one sponsored by all of us? The first suggestion was to write up something about a New York iron company moving into town to compete with the local steel conglomerate. But that wasn't fun or sexy. So instead, how about a kidnapping? 
The Denver papers of the time were leaning heavily on society stories about the sordid nightlives of local debutantes. Why not say some Boston detectives were in Denver on the trail of a stolen socialite? But that wouldn't fly for more than a few hours before the family or police would come forward to set the record straight. Nah, what they needed was something that was incredible, but yet somehow also not immediately falsifiable. How about a foreign story, one of the journos suggested. That way, they could write virtually anything, and nobody in Denver would be able to cut it down. They brainstormed foreign locales for a bit, maybe Russia, except none of them knew anything about Russia, Germany or Spain, sounded all right, or Holland, something about windmills maybe. But then, John Lewis of the Denver Evening Post suggested, What's the matter with the Great Chinese Wall? That sacred pile hasn't been in the news for ages. Why not a story about it? That sounded promising. But what sort of story? Let's tear it down, said Lewis. You know the rest. The headlines in Denver spreading to Chicago, Washington, New York, and beyond. Before, finally the news reaches China, where the people rebel, taking up arms against foreigners, Christians, and government officials, eventually leading to the deaths of 100,000 people in the Boxer Rebellion. If you believe the story. Which, again, you really shouldn't. Let's try this one more time. June 24th, 1899, downtown Denver, Colorado, the Oxford Hotel Bar. Four journalists for four papers, each assigned to the downtown beat and each coming up empty, meet for drinks and concoct a fake story that they all write up of a secret plan to demolish the Great Wall of China. The account of Frank C. Lewis, secret Chicago engineer on his way to Peking, ran the next day in three of the papers. The Denver Republican read, Builds Highway of Chinese Wall. The Denver Times said, Chicago to demolish the old Chinese wall. The Denver Evening Post, Old Wall Must Go. But Hal Wilshire of the Rocky Mountain News did not write up the story. It did not run on the front page, and it did not contain the screaming, all-caps headline reading, Great Chinese Wall is Doomed, Peking to Seek World's Trade. Maybe Hal found another story instead, real or not, or maybe he chickened out. Whatever the reason, his story did not run. So, where'd that headline come from? Did I make it up? Why would I lie to you like that? Well, don't blame me. Blame... Well, I'm not really sure who to blame, ultimately. But let's start by blaming Harry Lee Wilbur. Who's that? I have no idea. What I've been able to figure out about Harry Lee Wilbur is frustratingly anemic. He was born in Michigan in 1901 and died in Acme, Washington in 1997. He married Grace Ellen Stribling, with whom he had 11 children. He's credited as the composer of a song entitled Back to Dear Old Denver Town, but it was written when he was 11 years old, so either he was a musical prodigy who never seems to have done anything musical again, or else something funky is up with that song. The thing that matters for this story about Harry Lee Wilbur is that in the spring of 1939, he wrote an article for the North American Review entitled A Fake That Rocked the World. In it, he gives the complete sequence of events for that night, June 24, 1899, at the Oxford Hotel Bar in downtown Denver, Colorado. He details the four crestfallen reporters, sudsing it up together, 
deciding to fake a story, coming up with the destruction of the Great Wall, all of it. And he gives us that non-existent headline by Hal Wilshire on the front page of the Rocky Mountain News. If we're to believe the story, what parts are we to believe? Here's what we actually know. Yes, the Denver Republican, Times, and Evening Post ran the story. And yes, it was picked up by the Chicago Tribune, Washington Post, New York Times, and others. But in each and every paper it appeared in, it was buried, six pages in or further. And in the case of the New York Times, the tone of the article is extremely skeptical. The Grey Lady asks why China would want to demolish their most famous piece of history, how would you even use the material to make a road, and why that would be preferable to building a new one. And finally, if, indeed, China wanted to raise the wall, why wouldn't they just do it themselves? Good questions, New York Times. What we also know is that the story concocted that night at the Oxford Hotel Bar never got beyond American borders. It didn't reach England or Peru or Russia. Importantly, it never got to China, and most definitely was not responsible for the deaths of 100,000 in the Boxer Rebellion. The real cause of the Boxer Rebellion was complicated, very complicated, too complicated to go fully into now. In the late 19th century, a number of secret martial arts societies began to form around China, including Yi He Chuan, or Righteous and Harmonious Fists, who preached a belief in a form of spirit possession that would make them impervious to foreign weapons. The Western world came to know them as the boxers, due both to Yi He Quan's public martial arts displays and the West's complete lack of imagination about what to call things. The boxers were angry with the foreign influence all around China, including the American, German, Dutch, Austrian, French, Russian, Italian, and especially Japanese governments. Anti-imperialist sentiment heated, boiled, and bubbled. At the same time, large swaths of the country were hit by alternating drought and flooding, increasing tensions and desperation, which tend to go hand in hand. But most importantly, the boxers were pissed at all the Christian missionaries, who were flouting Chinese social rules and converting their fellow countrymen. Between 1897 and 1899, there were numerous attacks and small-scale skirmishes between boxers and foreigners. Boxer activities were kept in check largely by the thumb of the Empress, up until January 1900, when a conservative majority in the imperial court caused her to rethink her alliances with foreign governments. She then came to the defense of the boxers, and with that, the rebellion began in earnest. By coincidence, this was just months after the Chinese wall story had spread across the United States, such that it had spread across the United States. The two had nothing to do with one another, and that's worth talking about, because Harry Lee Wilbur's account didn't appear out of the ether, and it didn't disappear there either. Wilbur's article pinpointing the Great Wall hoax as the impetus of the Boxer Rebellion cites as its source a lecture by Methodist Bishop Henry White Warren, given sometime before 1912, presumably, since that's the year he died. According to Wilbur, the lecture was to be on the subject of the conditions in the Orient. But it began with a strange opening. You may not realize, friends, the power of the printed word. Bad news and false news pick up added fuel and eventually blaze devastatingly. He then went on to explain his meaning. 
describing how some bunch of journalists had created a story about American engineers destroying the Great Wall of China, which led, he said, to the Boxer Rebellion. According to Wilbur, Hal Wilshire, reporter for the Rocky Mountain News, was there in a pew to hear the bishop's speech. According to Wilbur, he almost fell out of it. But wait, Hal Wilshire didn't write an article about the Great Wall hoax, and the Rocky Mountain News didn't publish one. Harry Lee Wilbur just said they did. Furthermore, there's no reason to think that Bishop Warren was anywhere near China during any of the events in question. For a good part of them, he was in Buenos Aires, beset by appendicitis. Did Bishop Warren just make up the whole story around the made-up story? Or did Harry Lee Wilbur make up him making the made-up story up? Denver, Colorado, what is wrong with you? When Wilbur's story was published in 1939, the Great Wall hoax was totally obscure, almost completely unknown. But since then, his version of it, complete with fomenting a six-figure casualty war, has spread far and wide. In my first stage of sort of surface research on this story, I read in several places that his version has been a popular part of Christian sermons for decades now, right up until today. And I thought of that unsourced claim, yeah, okay, prove it. But indeed, it is. Reverend David Hallwick told this tale at the First Baptist Church of Ledgewood, New Jersey, back in June of 1994. Pastor Mark Baird told the story in an Alabama sermon in 1997. Nathan Buttery gave a similar account at Christ Church Riverside in Hull, England in 2002. L. Scott Kellum wrote about it in his 2014 book, Preaching the Farewell Discourse. Rick Pendleton wrote a slightly different version of essentially the same sermon in 2015. And so did Pastor Darren Brown of Australia's Ignite Christian Church in 2018. And just nine months ago, in January of 2020, Pastor Jack Abilene told the same story at Morningstar Christian Chapel in Whittier, California. Quick, strap your irony helmet on as tight as you can, because the topic of all of these sermons, and who knows how many others that aren't easily Googleable, was the power of the tongue, making sure to speak the truth. You can't make this shit up! Except that I guess obviously you can. Maybe the bones of this sermon have been reconstituted continually since Bishop Warren first breathed life into them back in the early 20th century, provided that actually happened. My guess, though, is that Wilbur's article is the Ur sermon. I doubt any clergy picked it up from the North American Review, but they wouldn't have to, because his 1939 story was reprinted 17 years later in Great Hoaxes of All Time. Then it found its way into a 1970 issue of Denver Westerners Roundup, and finally, in 1980, the myth was cemented into popular history, and the sermons of untold numbers of truth-seeking pastors, when it was told by none other than radio personality, Paul Harvey. And now you know the rest of the story. Good day. Music for today's episode by Kevin McLeod, Blue Dot Sessions, Anime is Trash, Midair Machine, The West Point Band, Woody Herman and his orchestra, Harry James and his orchestra, Jimmy Dorsey and his orchestra, and Lee Rosevere, who is an orchestra unto himself. 
The website's constantpodcast.com. The Twitter is at Constant Podcast. And the Patreon page where you can sign up to support the show is patreon.com slash the constant. We're a part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, the Boston-based home of smart, informative shows like Soonish, a show about futurism that has recently taken a turn from looking at technology to looking at politics. On the latest episode, host Wade Rausch asks what we can, should, and must do after Trump, God willing, leaves office to ensure that his brand of xenophobic populism never again darkens the door of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's a pressing, timely, and damned important listen. Holy God, please vote. Until next time from Chicago, Illinois, where in 1936 the Chicago Tribune reported that Russia was providing secret orders to sleeper cell American communists. Vote Roosevelt. This has been The Constant. And now you know the rest of the story. Good day. That was terrible. We got to do a better Paul Harvey than that. Let's just, we're going to just do this a bunch of times. And now you know the rest of the story. Good day. And now you know the rest of the story. Good day. And now you know the rest of the story. Good day. And now you know the rest of the story. Good day. Oh, yeah, it needs a little more. I need to sort of like kind of tremble it. He's got a little tremolo, which I tend to also have a little tremolo. So it shouldn't be difficult to draw this up. And now you know the rest of the story. Good day. And now you know the rest of the story. Good day. I can't say it anymore. The whole sentence is uh, suffering from somatic cessation. Like, I, it's beginning to... None of those words are words anymore. And I need some of them. So I'm going to stop there. <laughs>